Hi, this is Maritza from Protectors of the Wood. The Protectors of the Wood is an adventure book series about a group of teenagers who save the world from climate change. These teenagers find out who they are while dealing with the climate emergency and the conflicts that surround them in Middletown and Rivergate. The two main characters, Phoebe and Abby, work together to find solutions within their communities. Phoebe and Abby unravel the secrets in their small town and realize that they're all connected to a global conflict. In book one, Phoebe comes home. Phoebe comes home from college and discovers shocking changes threatening Middletown. A gigantic corporation threatens to destroy the land, legends and heritage of her family and friends. Phoebe discovers that she has a unique gift of seeing visions through Dreamstone, a gem found deep under the vast forest preserve. In book two, Phoebe breaks through. Abby is hunted ruthlessly by her enemies who hope to learn the most important secret on earth. Abby's mysterious mission leads to a dangerous climax in a haunted house outside of town. And here's Joseph Vitiliano to speak about the other two books. In book three, The Ghost Girl, Abby moves into an abandoned cottage in the churchyard. She soon realizes that she is watched seven days a week, 24 hours a day, by investigators hired by the enormous corporation trying to take over Middletown and uncover the secrets of the forest. Abby, Phoebe, and their friends organize their own youth council as the vanguard of a new mission to save their town, the forest, and the wide world around them. Abby's father gives her a strange staff called the Mapstick, a family heirloom he inherited from his father. At the end of the Ghost Girl book, Abby begins to learn the power and significance of the Mapstick as it protects her from danger and aids her to escape to the forest to visit her godmother, Wendy. And now, Episode 1 of Book 4, Abby and Wendy, The Journey to Wendy's House. Abby plunged blindly into the forest, hardly caring where she was going. Her only wish was to put distance between herself and the stalkers she had seen talking to George on Main Street. Carrying the mapstick and the briefcase hindered her progress, forcing her toward wide openings in the brush and making her avoid crawling under brambles. Her favorite method of escape was practically eliminated. After a short time, she became aware of an instinct, urging her to bend her course to the left. But why? Ah, because I'm leaving tracks and making noise. The pine forest will solve both problems. She found the space to run up a slippery slope into the dense expanse of pine trees that covered the land, all the way to the ridge about a mile ahead. Ducking her head, she quickly entered the shadow of thick trees and began walking on a cushion of brown pine needles. The snow had hardly touched this protected ground. She moved quickly without a sound, leaving no tracks. Near the rocky face of the high ridge, she stopped and went down on one knee, listening intently and studying the way she had come. The only sound was her desperate panting and the pounding of her heart. As her breathing returned to normal, she had a chance to think. Was George trying to follow me? Yeah, 
He looked at the tracks of my bike leading up Oak Knoll Lane and into the field. Was he helping the stalkers? Apparently he was. They arrived in a car and spoke to him. And yet, after George saw my tracks, he jogged forward for a minute or two. When the car arrived, he was toward the end of the field, a fair distance from the tracks. Thus the stalkers in the car were led away from my path. Unless, of course, George walked back to show them. But then why didn't he just wait for the cars at the tracks? Why run ahead at all? Perhaps George was helping me conceal my escape. I wish I'd had the courage to wait and see what he did. Pushing these thoughts aside, she tried to make sense of her incredible race by bicycle through the hailstorm. The bike had found a safe route through icy, crowded streets at high speed, moving with perfect balance. The bike seemed to drive itself, giving her a feeling of complete security, almost ecstatic happiness. Did something impossible happen? Why? How? Abby had no idea. Am I going crazy? It's the strangest thing. I can't believe it. She forced her attention onto other issues that demanded immediate consideration. And she became aware of a feeling of despair. A darkness of anguish lurking behind her every thought. I'm free. It looks like I'm not being followed. But then what's the problem? That is so obvious. It's just too painful. The horrible truth is that I failed. My mission for Wendy is in ruins, totally, with no hope of redemption. The trust that people have placed in me has been in vain. I failed through my own mistakes. Tears began to flow down her cheeks. I'll have to tell Wendy all about it. Today, in three hours or so, I'll have to hand her this crushing disappointment. I'll have to retire at the age of 19. Maybe I'll find some work in Sunny's garden. Maybe I'll help Yuvia and Diego with the boat club. Maybe I'll become a pilot like Sharon and ferry people up and down the Half Moon River and explore the swamp and catch fish. But whatever, my grand mission is over. It was a long shot anyway. It was too grandiose to be true anyway. I'm really nothing special. Just an ordinary girl trying to grow up. And yet, there are a few things that are hard to explain. But no time for that now. Wendy will know the answers. Abby was suddenly aware that she was wet and cold. The storm had blown off, but the cold rain had soaked her clothes. Hailstones had fallen on her neck and shoulders and slipped down her back to melt there on her bare skin. She knew she had to get moving. Her teeth were chattering. She felt dazed. But where am I going? What's my route to Wendy's house? It would have saved time to hit the Half Moon River upstream, where Cedar Creek and Half Moon can be crossed on those logs. But a voice quickly spoke in Abby's mind. Remember the flooding, Abby. The logs have been swept away. Abby was thinking, Of course. 
A chill of fear crept into her heart. Since leaving the church, she'd felt as if someone, something, was inside her mind, advising and helping her. Am I going crazy? What am I to make of this? Hello? Is somebody in there? But no reply came forth. She remained still, holding the briefcase and the mapstick, unsure which way to go. Your boat. Of course. I'll cross the half moon in my boat and head upstream to the stairway up the cliff. But what in God's name is going on? Abby began walking at an easy pace, hugging the ridge on her right. It was a relief to have shaken off all pursuit and to be sure of the road ahead. The branches of the tall old pine trees occasionally spread across her path, and she had to struggle to get through, even crawling a few times, holding the mapstick and pushing the briefcase ahead of her. She vividly remembered going this same way with Jeremy only three evenings before. That journey had begun as a fabulous adventure, and then it became a disaster, part of the collapsing house of cards that had been her experience of the last three days. Eventually, the pines thinned out and the ridge met the rising ground. Abby walked up over the slope and descended to the Half Moon River. Her dinghy was where she and Phoebe had left it, hidden under the brambles. She slid it into the water, jumped in with her briefcase and the mapstick, and paddled furiously with her flat piece of wood. The current had eased up over the last few days. The boat hit the far side, not far from its hidden nest under the enormous fallen maple tree. With the boat out of sight, she hiked along the bank of the river. The towering cliff grew closer and closer, leaving only a narrow, rocky bank for the traveler. She struggled along, tired and confused. To her relief, the voice in her mind was quiet for now. The wind died down. Abby grew warm as her clothes slowly dried. Walking near the cliff was hard work, and the distance was about three miles. The cloudy sky was dimmer by the time she reached the stairway. She sat for a moment next to the thin oval rock that hid the entrance, dreading the climb ahead. The multiple crises of the last few days had exhausted her nerves and mental energy and shaken her confidence. She forced herself to think through the climb and realized that the mapstick and the briefcase would make awkward, even dangerous baggage. Awkward through the first two-thirds of the climb and dangerous near the top. How could she safely hold them when she had to go on all fours, gripping the face of the mountain. Remember the piece of twine, Abby. The piece of twine? What piece of twine? No answer came. She recalled the twine that she had used to tie the mapstick to the bike, but she had no memory of what she had done with it. Her pockets were empty, but there, wrapped around the mapstick several times, was a piece of twine. She unwound it and found it long enough to secure the mapstick to the back of her belt. It would still be a hazard near the top. The mapstick was almost as tall as she was. 
But the climb was now at least possible. She could carry her treasures by hand for the first two-thirds and tie the mapstick on before she had to go on all fours. Abby grabbed the tall, oval rock, rolled it a few feet out of the narrow space between the boulder and the cliff, and then squeezed through, pulling the rock back behind her. Holding the mapstick and briefcase to her right and left, she slipped sideways through the thin tunnel to the stairway up the rising crack in the cliff. It was not a real stairway, just rocks piled up in the long diagonal opening. But it wasn't hard to climb, just exhausting. At the top, Abby rested in a flat, concealed space and then tied the mapstick to her belt in an X-rotation and pulled her belt extremely tight, all to keep the long staff up and down over the length of her body. She took a deep breath and set out along the ledge that zigzagged up the rest of the cliff. Soon she was on all fours, clutching dwarf pine trees, rock, anything to get a handhold. Her right hand had to balance her progress while gripping the briefcase at the same time. Finally, she crawled over gradual slope to level ground and lay there a minute in relief. Relentlessly pushing herself forward, she crawled into the trees to avoid being silhouetted on the cliff for any observer in the valley below. She sat and rested for a moment, untied the mapstick from her belt, and enjoyed holding it again in her hand. There was something so pleasing about the lightness of the staff. It felt like she could twirl it in her fingers, like a baton. The crows circled overhead, calling their hello in rough voices. She knew she was close to home. Hurrying over the stony ridge covered with dwarf pine trees, she descended into a narrow valley thick with maples and pines and boulders. Then she hit a second, much smaller cliff, a sheer face of stone about 30 feet high. She walked along it for a moment and cautiously looked behind her and listened carefully. The crows settled calmly on a nearby maple tree. There were clearly no intruders around. She moved through the bushes to the point where one vertical edge of the cliff face extended beyond another. There she squeezed into a small opening and climbed through a narrow crevice over rocks and stunted undergrowth. Soon the crevice closed over her head and became a dark and cramped tunnel. Steps impressed in the dirt and stone made it easy for her to climb slowly in the dark. And yet, it wasn't quite dark. A faint bluish glow illuminated some of the details around her. She noticed that the wrapping had slipped off the top of the mapstick, and it was shining like a tiny moon. That glow had met her eyes once before, in her father's closet, long ago. This is no dream. Or maybe it's a dream that's really happening. In a minute or two, she had to slip sideways through another narrow opening. With a feeling of panic, she wondered if the end of the tunnel would even be open. But turning the corner, she saw the golden light and wriggled out under a thicket of bushes on the hillside. 
Standing behind a boulder, she caught her breath and listened to the faint music of the stream not far away. She brushed off her clothes, smoothed her hair, and walked down through a small, secluded valley. The setting sun was broken into a thousand shadows by a great beech woods. The thick gray trunks burst into long silver branches reaching for the sky. Abby crossed a small stream and took a few strides up a hillside, soft with countless years of leaves. On her right, almost covered by a mat of ivy, was a knoll that jutted out of the hill above the stream. She walked around to the uphill side. The knoll rose about 30 feet, all covered with stone, earth, grass, vines, and even small trees. At the very bottom was a green wooden rectangle, maybe three feet wide and four feet high, covered with ivy and wild plants. It was the door to Wendy's house. Abby stood listening to the faint splashing of the water and sent forth a silent prayer. Then she knocked. There was no reply. She knocked again, but heard nothing. The voice inside her head spoke. Wendy's not here. Thanks for listening. Episode 2 is coming soon. To hear all the episodes, please go to our website, www.protectorsofthewood.com.
gotten so that I can't see my star no more. My God, no more of these closing doors.